0: Welcome to Fast Talk, the Velo News podcast, and everything you need to know to ride like a pro.
1: Fast Talk is sponsored by Quark, maker of kick-ass bicycle data systems like the Quark Collector. Waterproof and wearable, it's the perfect tool for coaches and data-dedicated athletes. Collector uses GPS, ANT+, Plus, and cellular technology to let you seamlessly sync your high-definition data, share real-time tracking. And connect with your fellow riders. Find out more at cork.com forward slash collector. And that's with a Q, by the way Q O L L.
2: And I had, to, I had to point this out to the guys. It's like sometimes it's not about how you win or your result when you're on top form. Because it's really unfair to ask of a team director to sign you off your best result ever. But it's also how you ride when you're tired.
3: Hello, and welcome to Fast Talk, the Vela News Podcast. This is coach Trevor Connor, along with VeloNews writer-superstar Kaylee Fretz. Joining us is a multi-talented superstar, ex-pro superstar, manager superstar with a Velo Cycling, and podcast superstar Michael Creed. Our plan today was to take on a simple question. Is it possible to stay on top form all year round? We want to take on this question because I'm often asked by writers whether it's possible, and when I give my opinion, they say, but pros do it. Michael, who is uniquely qualified to answer this question, both as an ex-pro rider and as a pro manager, may have something else to say. And while that question may have been our starting point, we'll go in a whole variety of directions, really delving into what it's like surviving a season as a pro, including mapping out the season, targeting races, and the importance of not just physical fitness, but mental toughness. To help us along the way, we'll hear from two pro riders, Kyle Reinen and Tom Skunch. And I think I just butchered both of their names. This is an exciting one that really gives a rare perspective into training and racing at a higher level. So strap in, and let's make you faster.
1: All right, so uh, let's dive right in here, Trevor. As you alluded to in your little introduction, there, uh, the, the primary question we are trying to answer today is whether it is possible to stay on peak form throughout the entire year. Uh, and and I think the first thing we wanted to do was go around this table here, the three of us, and decide whether well to to provide our opinions on that. And my my initial reaction is absolutely not. And I think that is a <laughs> I think that much is pretty clear. However. A lot of amateurs still try to
3: do this anyway. What do you think, Trevor? Well, I think you already know my answer, which is I have never seen somebody be able to do it. I've certainly seen riders who can stay on really good form year round. I find them to be somewhat unique. But I don't think you can ever hit top, top form, 100% form and hold it that long. Uh, with the athletes I coach, this is a bit of a simplification. Like I said, every athlete's different, but I apply a, what I call a 6-9-12 rule which is it takes you about six weeks from when you stop doing base to build race form. It takes you another three weeks to hit a peak. And then three weeks after that, or about 12 weeks, you're going to start really pushing burnout. And at that point, you, you have to take a break or your body's going to make you take a break. Uh, you can play with that. And we might talk a little bit later about this whole concept of block periodization. But I believe very strongly the, the longest you can stay on top form is, is about six weeks. At a time.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think by definition, peak form, right? Like if if it's a peak, then you can't stay up there very long. <laughs> right? Otherwise, that's just your natural level. But I think there are ways to stay at the high level. And when athletes say, well, pros do it or these guys do it, I, I'd be interested to see who they were
1: pointing out. And I think maybe the, the mis, misconception comes from teams like, Sky or similar, or, or maybe not even teams, but just riders that seem to be able to pop back up to peak form with some frequency. I mean, you, you know, you look at at Chris Froome doing Tour Vuelta Double or Quintana doing the Giro Tour Double, or uh, maybe even an even better example is Bradley Wiggins. You know, in two thousand twelve, winning everything from Paris Nice straight through the Tour de France, it makes it seem like those guys are are peaking the entire year, and maybe that's where the the misperception comes from is is they're not actually peaking the entire year. Are they just that much stronger? I mean, how does Bradley Wiggins win paris and the Tour de France in the same year?
2: I think it was a <clears> couple <throat> years ago, uh, from one Tour of Oman. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, what people have to realize is that you don't make, pick that one outlier, that guy who's so talented, that he can get away with it, that he can show up to this race at 90%. Uh, he had a really good winner. Maybe he's really lean and he can get these results but you you don't make like the the rules based on the people who are just so talented that they don't have to play by them you know so like (laughs) when you have a Chris from Peter Sagan Bradley Wiggins like yeah you, you don't make your training like them and you don't make your races like them
3: I think another reason you see the misconception is people forget that just because a professional team goes from some point in february all the way through october it doesn't mean all the riders are going that whole length mm-hmm. of time so I, I think with all teams and mike being a team you manage a, a top pro team really interested in, in how you manage this but what i've always seen is you you will have some riders who are designated to be very strong in early season you can have some that are designated to be strong at, at some of those key races at, at the
2: peak of the summer and then some that are even going to try to be strong at the end of the year is that how you did it yeah i think um the way I always like doing it is I liked coming out hot, and I liked um, as a setting a tone, and I think it's easier to come out hot and try to throttle that and make that last as long as possible, rather than possibly do a little too little, think that you're gonna gonna be great, and you come to these first races like Redlands or whatever, and you you know you take a hiding, and then you can build up and you know to whatever say national championships, Tour Colorado, but unfortunately like. I don't think if you're talented enough to really ride well at Torre Colorado and get these top 10s or whatever, then you're talented enough to not take a hiding at Redlands. So for me, I think it builds a lot of morale within the team to come out, put in a really, really good winner, do your first races really, really great. And then try to find a way to throttle back because I think more than physical fatigue, because I think you can hold the physical, you can stay above 90% physically throughout the year. If you play it right, you know, with really doing a lot of rest, uh, really good diet and all this. But I think where that burnout comes is more the mental fatigue of there's only so many times you can be on the start line and just be willing to go that extra three or four percent harder. And that I don't think it's a physical burnout. I think it's a mental burnout and like a CNS type of uh, burnout. So Mm -hmm. the way to do that within the team is just to give those riders different goals. And let them know that there's not a lot of pressure in this race and that you need them to do this one specific task so if you do have a climber and you're trying to rest him a little bit but you need him to take the start you tell him that his job is to stay with this one sprinter and help him get over the climb so now his job is roll, it's it's changed around um maybe he gets a little bit more enjoyment out of that he doesn't have to go up the climb and create such a demand on himself and i th- I think that's a really good way of keeping everybody smooth throughout the year. It Does not always work. I mean, the first year on SmartStop by the time we we came out hot, like we were racing in February in the Dominican Republic. we you know did Redlands, did well at, uh, Gila, and then we came in we won nationals and by the time we got to Utah, it started getting a little shaky and uh man Tour, of Colorado and Tour of Alberta were pretty bad. i remember the, <laughs> I uh, won we give the meetings before on the bus. And I gave one meeting on the tour bu- on the bus where I just finally told them, like, look, if you guys are, if you guys are tired, which is totally okay if you're tired, just let me know because I don't want to keep making these plans if we're not going to do them. And if you're not going to do them because you're too tired, I I don't care. But if you're not doing them because you're not doing them, then I'm getting angry. So you guys, you have to tell me which one. And with a couple of days left to go, we just didn't do any more <laughs> race meetings. <laughs> just did a very painful tour around Alberta. <laughs> just get to the finish line.
3: A couple years ago, I talked with Kyle Reinen, a pro with Trek Segafredo, about this very question of surviving the pro season. He had a lot of great things to say about how pro cycling is changing, the importance of base, and needing a break. What really struck me re-listening to this interview a couple years later is how much he and Creed, two experienced pros, see eye to eye, as you'll see.
4: First thing that comes to mind for me is uh, something that's really changing in the sport that that we as riders are noticing is the season length. It is unbearably long at this point, and something that didn't used to exist and now exists are these mid-season breaks. Sometimes they're a week, sometimes they're three days. Um, they're as much mental as they are physical, but it's becoming not like a a sport like like I think of Ironman as um, one or boxing, where you have you have an event. There's a specific buildup to that event and then a decompression time post event. I think for guys who are tour stars, you're seeing a lot more of of that kind of targeted racing where they have a handful of targets throughout the season. They're not afraid to shut it down in between, um, rebuild for, for the event. And this whole idea of uh, base training followed by intervals followed by seven months of racing and maintenance is not realistic anymore um I don't think it's I don't think science backs it either. Having specific hard training near an event is is effective and and that maybe means you don't need to be doing medium hard training for three months before the event uh that's maybe not as effective and I do think that fatigue is is a bigger issue than it used to be because the races are not necessarily longer but they're definitely harder um more kind of across the board you know there's no vacation races everyone takes every race seriously every race is an opportunity um so you have to you have to pick goals you you know now no one shows up to team camp and says yeah i want to be good from january through october it's just not realistic so you know teams are focusing on specific goals for specific riders and i think part of that is this finding out that specific training Uh, for for an event not like you're saying not months in advance but sort of right before that event work and and you find you know the form is such a kind of fleeting thing Uh, i've i've been there's kind of this, this saying that we all have that if you're on form nothing matters you can lose sleep you can get a cold you can have a shitty travel you can do all this stuff, and somehow if you're on form, you're just on form. But when it's done, it's gone, and it doesn't matter how much you rest or how much you tweak this, that, how much you sleep, you're not on form anymore. <laughs> so why is that? You know, what what is how is that happening? And And because it's so important for us to be able to predict when we're on form, we need to understand more about why that happens. And I do think part of it is this – Tendency in the sport to overtrain, to to look at this the kind of macro cycle of uh, the year as a big base build up followed by efforts followed by racing and and maintenance. I I don't think that that is the best model anymore. So what is you know you you have to have some sort of base fitness, right? Otherwise, what are you doing your intervals from? If you don't have base fitness, you're you're starting from scratch every time you do your week of effort. So that doesn't work. So there needs to be some sort of maintenance base, aerobic, whatever, but then kind of a hard punch quite near the event is maybe all you need to spur a lot of these, these systems as opposed to the kind of old school Euro mentality would be race, race to fitness. Use some of those early season races that used to not be as hard to get that intensity in and then you're good to go. That's, too much for too long uh, I think anymore so what, it, what intrigues me about what you're saying is how little time it took how close to the event you really can up your game right so it's yeah. you're saying if you feel like crap um, or, you're, or you're not putting out great numbers three weeks before an event two weeks before an event stay calm you, you still have opportunity to, uh, to make progress a lot of progress perhaps, um, and that coming into three weeks before the event, not fatigued, is maybe just as important as coming into it
3: fit. I was going to say, is that something that you ever do, or is it with your calendar, it's just not really even an option?
4: Well, so with the calendar I've had the last three years, we don't do a Tour de France. Uh, and for those who don't make the Tour de France team on their, on their respective teams, same kind of opportunity, July is dead. And that's really important. That's that's where I've taken opportunity to take a mid-season break, a week off, reset, not lose all my fitness, but, but come down to a level where I'm not constantly in a state of fatigue and trying to balance fatigue versus sharpness. You know, what that, what that kind of chunk in July allows me to do is to prepare really well for August. And that's been huge for me because I always seem to be able to perform for the rest of the year after that. Um, you know, as you get towards October – Maybe fatigue sets in again, but that that ability to reset there, I think uh, the people who do reset there, you see them perform in the second half of that season, well, the guys who haven't had the opportunity to reset there really just continue to get worse as the season right. comes to the end they're they're just hanging on, especially guys that are performing in the tour, that kind of thing it's like and and that's why you see you know a lot of the tour stars are pretty vacant at races like. Colorado races like Worlds, the sort of late season races. Yeah. The top tour guys, you know, there's always exceptions. You know, I don't know what to tell you about Alonzo Valverde. Apparently, this guy's the limit. But for most of us humans, mere humans, it's uh, it's too big a ask to to keep that rolling.
0: Well, but the, but maybe
4: this idea makes it more sustainable, right? It makes that longer racing calendar more sustainable if we're saying hey you know what we're, we're, we're making too big a deal out of this long build up to these events and really we don't need that much preparation as long as you have some maintenance level of, of fitness then what we can say is now we can have more than a couple of targets for the year maybe you can have five or six spread out evenly and and we're just doing a, a real specific prep for each each one and really shut it down after each one. So. It, it's always it's really dangerous and easy when you're on form to go, well, I'm on form, I gotta race, you know, I gotta use this form, I got it. Sometimes you can extend that that form, of that fitness for longer if you're a little more careful with it, you know, if you treat it a little more fragilely. So instead of saying, "Hey, I'm I'm on form. Yeah, you know, Colorado went really well. Let's let's do Alberta." Maybe yep. instead you take a little rest after Colorado. You do a hard week and then you do an event a week after Alberta or 2 weeks after Alberta. Yeah. And you know, there's always a tactic to it for riders like guys, let's say you're on a 2-year contract. You're, you know, um you're wanting to step up teams or, you know, make a leap or something it's really important that you come out of the gates hot for whatever reason, knowing that people intuitively definitely cut down their off season. Um, And uh, if your target is July, you know, it used to be that you you really took a long off season and and eased into it. Now now those guys have decided that, in fact, um, coming into the season hot and then shutting it down, and then coming back again by July is is more ideal. But there, you know, depending on what your targets are, there's definitely different approaches. It's worth it's worth thinking. Yeah, different approaches. It's worth thinking about how you approach it.
3: So both physically and mentally, how do you, how did you deal with it? And, and as a manager, how do how do your riders deal with it when a lot of the, uh, they're often doing over a hundred starts
2: in a year, and that. In itself can just wear you out I think um, having an exact goal is is uh, key if you make the goal very ambiguous and just like oh go out there do your best pal like like (laughs) I just I don't even know what that means do my best you know whereas um, directing a team I would email every rider individually and give them stage by stage expectations and it's very specific and they were very realistic there, the expectations were never best day, best form, get lucky expectations. But if it was like, look, I have you on this team because I think in this time trial, you would be the top, in the top 35. So you need to be top 35 in this time trial. Now that doesn't sound like, it sounds weird to even tell somebody that to get so far back, but if the rider is tired and they warming up and the legs don't feel great, they know they're not going to win. They know they're not going to get top 10. The chances of them riding a little bit easier, feeling sorry for themselves, still feeling for the pain, and then coming in and getting 60th, pretty high. But if you let them know that you're watching and you're not asking something unrealistic... But you need to get as many guys inside that top 30 for just general tactics and expectations and for themselves because then other directors are looking at them and seeing that even on the bad days, they can still perform. That's that's how you coax them into very realistic and honest goals and results. Do, yeah. do you have guys that you, that you tell to sort of, that rather than hit a big
1: peak, uh, to try to sort of maintain, you know, the, the sort of low 90s kind of level? And then other riders that you tell to, to peak a little bit harder?
2: No, I mean, you you know pretty quickly where the rider's head's at, what races are important to them, what they want to try to prove or whatever. So you, you help build around that. But you definitely don't want riders to get into this idea that they are afforded the luxury of being able to bag races because that within the division three continental circuit like that that's not a luxury anybody has this thing of everybody's like well i it's okay i didn't ride very well at this race there's a big race you know what you know a couple weeks down the road or a couple months down the road it's like yeah you're not on a pro tour team you're not making a million dollars every everybody's fighting for spots like that's one hell of a gamble you're taking because if you don't win that race then guess what your whole season is done so uh, and that kind of extends down to.
1: I mean, we we spend a lot of time on this podcast. Actually, the first the first episode that we did was essentially why aren't you a professional? That probably extends down to amateurs. There were many reasons.
2: <laughs> I like that. I'm gonna have to listen to that.
1: One. <laughs> that probably extends down to amateurs trying to make that leap up, right? I mean, you no. Know, if you are, if you're a cat one, and I'm sorry, I'm getting a little bit off topic here, but I think it's an interesting discussion. If yeah. you're a cat one and you're trying to make that leap up to a Conti team. Maybe a big peak is not the way to do that. Maybe maybe sort of more consistent riding. So, for example, I was talking to Larry War- Larry Warbass not too long ago. And he went from uh, Hinkapi to BMC to, to EM and then basically now back down to the Pro Conti level. And he never really had any exceptional results as a junior U- U23. He essentially just sort of chugged along and was like fifth in every single race that he went to. Sure. Is that a good way to, to get yourself noticed? I mean, you, you've been in that, that hiring position as well.
2: Yeah, there's definitely something to consistency. Um, like one of the biggest things you worry about as a director is how to get the riders competitive. Mm-hmm. So if you have a guy that you know is a little set and forget, like, okay, maybe he's never going to be your strongest guy. But he's reliable. He's gonna, you can start him in different races. So I think towards the latter part of my pro career when I wasn't climbing as well anymore, I really had to focus on other things and learn how to do the lead out and uh, protect sprinters. So you'd be kind it, there's definitely a role for this um, the position I kind of call as it, like the Swiss Army knife of a rider where, um, or like the leatherman of a <laughs> rider where it's like he's never the perfect tool for the job. but you never really want to go without him either because he can get you out of a jam right he wouldn't he wouldn't be the only tool you brought (laughs) You might be in a little bit (laughs) might be in some trouble if that was it but it's really good to have around and that way you get starts in all sorts of races right from criteriums to races in colorado but i think number one thing you look for is age how long they've been professional and their consistency i mean there's definitely something where if a if a guy just pops up and wins a stage at Redlands or um, Joe Martin, Hila, what are these, it definitely grabs your attention. But if he just does that, this one massive run, and then disappears, and it's back in the 70s and 80s and whatever, then... I mean, unless he's really young, the, op- the chances of him getting pro pro ride out of that are pretty slim. It's better to be consistently in the top 20 and be... Um, every time the the bunch gets reduced down to 20 or 30 that when they call names over race radio your name's constantly there right and it's through that like consistency that i think that that's really attractive to directors
3: so that's one of the reasons i really beat my fist on the uh the importance of base training especially i think most pros eventually realize how important this is but with newer riders and with some amateur riders they really, really want to focus on that that top end and they talk about, I need that 30 seconds to be able to win that race. And yes, that I'm going to say that top end is extremely important. You don't win races without it. But if you have a good base form, it should be able to allow you to finish with the lead group in a race. And really that top end is what takes you from just finishing with the lead group to now being one of the people contending to win the race. And that gives you some longevity through the season, in my opinion, because At certain points when you're starting to fatigue, we can stop doing some of that top-end work, we can bring you back down to base, and if you go into a race, you're not going to get popped. You're not going to win it, but you can still go in, do some work for your team, you can still finish relatively high up if you want, and then when you put the top-end on top of that, you start winning the races.
1: Well, first of all, I would would like like to give you uh, an A-plus for that segue, Trevor. That was well done. Thank Uh, you. (laughs) Back to the topic at hand. We had intended to talk a little bit about the physiology, uh, which you just sort of touched on just now, the the physiology of the importance of of starting with that really strong base. And as Mike was talking about earlier, like coming in maybe a little bit. You said you, you described as coming in hot, but at least coming in, you know, very, very fit, maybe not Mm -hmm. with a lot of, you know, super high end efforts, but with a big, big, big base season and not starting the season, quote unquote, slow. Can you, can you, can you go into the physiology? I know you've described it to me before off mic, the physiology of, you know, how, how fast you can actually get with nothing
3: but really a base mile season. That's a good question. Mike, I was very interested. I mean, (laughs) how do you feel about all this? Do you agree with the importance of that base or?
2: Yeah. I mean, uh, how far, how quickly you can come from base training to a competitive race. I think that that's really dependent on the rider. I mean, there's riders who are naturally very explosive. So they have, you know, that critical one to two minute power that it takes to make a front group over a climb. Um, and for a rider like me, I was, I was just a diesel. Like I can just if uh if i didn't get dropped in the first two minutes of the climb then i knew i was okay because i was just very hard with those accelerations so for me i think i had to do a little bit more work to get race ready uh, for riders who are naturally explosive i think they could rely almost solely on base training right but um the way i'd always try to explain it to athletes uh that i was coaching or directing for is for me the base is if you had uh like a car chassis and it's making sure that that car chassis is strengthened and as strong as possible. Because, yeah, we can go and we could do these VO2 efforts and uh, we could do any kind of like over under intervals that that we find fit. However, if you don't have this, uh, basically the, the simplest way of saying it is being fit enough to train. Because you can go through freshness, through just being excited, you can do these VO2s and forty twenties, whatever you want to do and you can create a lot of damage and it'll take you a lot longer to recover from that. And then you're back from that as far as percentage. Sure, you'll get like this overcompensation bump in the beginning and you'll feel great, but how far you can actually take that with being a little soft and unfit and have these other issues, like I, I think there's a bit of a ceiling to it. Whereas if you spent the winter um, working on your weight, getting your weight down, doing a lot of the core body movements and biomechanic movements and getting a lot of uh, high zone two work in so you're able to do a lot of work and then resting from that. I think that strengthens the chassis. So you have a weak chassis, you have a strong chassis. You put the same high-powered motor in both both of those. One of them is going to bend first, and you're going to need to stop doing what you're doing to try to get back. You go to the other one, you can throw a whole lot more at that chassis before it breaks. And it's easier to repair. So I think I think in general you have to be an athlete. And I don't think people always understand that. I
3: love that analogy. I haven't heard of that one, but That's I really weird. like that. <laughs> so looking at from a physiological standpoint I'm hoping most of our listeners have seen a, a, what a lactate test profile looks like where you you put somebody on a trainer and you have stages of increasing wattage and you measure their blood lactate. And what you'll see is at the lower wattages, their lactates are going to stay very level, usually below about one millimole. And then there's a point where it starts to kick up. And, and threshold is usually right around four millimoles for, for most people. So you just see this point where the, this graph just kicks right up. And that means that you're, you're starting to get to where you can't sustain those wattages anymore. And what you see with good base form is that graph just gets shifted right. You get to higher and higher wattages before you start to see that, that wattage kick up. And one of the best examples I've ever seen was Swain Tough. Swain used to be able to go out and do a five-hour ride at about 320, 330 watts. No big deal. At just flat lactates. <laughs> For most people... That's threshold. That's their 20-minute power. Yeah. For him, top, that was... Speaking
2: of, speaking of the exception to the rule. <laughs> the exception <laughs> of, yes. yeah. to the yes. But
3: to bring that back down to reality, so I'll use an example of, of an athlete that I was coaching who was a cat too, and he was trying to get to higher levels. Is this, and, me, is this me, Trevor?
1: Are we talking about me now?
3: No. Kaylee, Kaylee was one uh, of those guys who just, he drives me nuts because he's just strong all year round. So he is another exception to this, this rule. Strong is relative. But this other athlete, when he came to me and we talked about what he wanted to work on, he said, I need to work on my top end. I said, Why is that? He said, Well, I'm in the races. I'm fine until about two, two and a half hours into the race, and then everybody starts attacking, or the big dogs start attacking, and I can't respond to them. So I need more top end. So I asked him to send me some of his race files, pointed out the parts where, he's, uh, where in the race he was having problems responding. So I looked at the period of the two hours before. He was, uh, said he was struggling, and he had about an, his, his average heart rate was around 176, 177. I went, what's your threshold heart rate? He goes, oh, about 174, 175. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I went, this is not a top-end issue. This is a, a base issue. You're spending two hours at threshold just hanging on with these yeah. guys. Of course you can't respond. Where if you had the base, you know, the, the guys that he was racing against, they were probably sitting at a 140, 150 heart rate. Then you can attack.
2: Yeah. No, I think one of my favorite workouts, one of the riders I coach and then I think myself was uh, was going out and um, motor pacing. I would motor pace them for about two and a half, three hours. And I, I, don't, I don't do... I've shifted a lot away from power. I go a lot towards heart rate. And just having them... I'll just have them sit on the back of the scooter, uh, 160, 165. We just do that for three hours. And... It's, uh, every rider's the same, you know, the start and you you have them at 160, 165 and they're saying, oh, you know, we can go a little bit faster if you want. It's like, no, we're just going to go ahead and stay right here. Yep. And then we do a little bit of calorie restriction on the ride just to help, you know, get the, uh, glucose efficiency up and everything like that. And boy, after doing that, if you do... All the riders that do it, you do three days on, one day off, uh, two days on, one day off, and then repeat. And we do that for about three or four times, leading into a big race. The freshness that they would have before those critical powers were needed, they could almost do the selection purely based off a natural talent at that point because they were fresh. Because they were sitting in the pack, getting that uh, the same amount of torque that they were behind the moto. Um, because you know, you can't just go out and ride by yourself sometimes for two and a half, three hours. You're not getting the same micro accelerations from right. moving around in the wind and at that speed, at that cadence. It's a, it's hard to replicate unless you're going actually that fast. That's right. And then when you hit the bottom of the climb, I mean, we did it with uh, Shane Klein, who's like, he's known for being a criterium specialist in the States and he really wanted to do Tour Utah. And I was telling him like, well, you, if you want to do tour Utah, I, like you have to come to my house and train for a month. And then I'll let you start toward Utah, and we did that. We basically almost no top end work, just. But caveat to that, he's a sprinter. He has the natural explosiveness, right? And I just we brought a little bit of weight off of him, and we had him do a ton of high zone two, low zone three motor pacing, and boy, when Tony to Utah came, I mean, he was he was making the front group of forty and thirty, and for a sprinter, I mean, that was it's pretty incredible. So I know there's. I think sometimes people confuse through no it's not a big deal but i think they just confuse like what they uh what they want to do versus what they need Hmm. right it's it's not it's not like exciting right it's not exciting to go and ride for two and a half hours or or three hours um this high rpm uh medium heart rate zone like it's not fun but Hmm. like anytime people talk about like sacrifice or doing what others aren't willing to do sometimes i think they confuse that with like doing more intervals or doing like a going to bed hungrier or whatever like these these like these dynamic cliche attributes when really it's like no actually doing the same thing that's pretty boring and everybody tries to engineer a way around doing that over and over and over again. Like that sacrifice and that's doing what other people won't do.
3: Well I think getting people out to go and do intervals to tear themselves apart, that that's easy. Everybody wants to do that. You're right. It's yeah. this sort of work that people but well, it's, it's
1: almost—it almost feels like an immediate gratification. Kind exactly. Of thing, right. Like, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, you you can feel the pain in your legs. You know, somewhere in the back of your head, all right, I'm doing good work right now. It's kind of harder with the the kind of workouts that you're describing.
3: So I think the the key message here is that if you don't have the base, then yeah, you're only going to have a couple points in the year where when you're on absolute peak form, that you're going to be even something close to competitive. Where if you want to be able to be at least somewhat competitive all year round, that's where you're looking at the sort of work that we're just talking about. That's where you need to have that base so you can be sitting in the field comfortably.
2: Yeah, I think it's um, I would much rather have a rider who maybe was a little too fresh and a little too soft and really nervous and anxious on the start line versus a rider who came in super hot, super lean and is tired. And I think people need to have that faith in their ability to, where if they dedicate themselves to this effort, like I'm not going to attempt to make this feel good. I'm not going to attempt to be gliding up this climb. I just really, really want to do this. I really want to prove myself. They're going to have a pretty decent ride. They're they're, going to do okay. And I think that's what people confuse when they see, oh, this rider, he like... He's holding form all year, and it's not necessarily that. He's, maybe he can hold that form because he has the confidence that he's going to not try to make it easy on himself. He's going to go out there and dedicate, put himself in the right positions to perform. So to just falsely assume that it's all because of fitness, I think is a little disingenuous to the, what bike racing is. Fast Talk is
3: sponsored by Quark, maker of next-generation power meters and other kick-ass bicycle data systems. Their Calvin app is the digital wrench for Cork's power meter technology. Calvin uses Bluetooth, low energy, or ANT Plus to deliver firmware updates, diagnostics, power meter zeroing, and calibration from your desktop, laptop, or smartphone. Find out more at
2: cork.com. You know what happens a lot with Division Three racing in America is, you know, you come to races like Tour California and whatever, the Pro Tour guys come over. And often the pro tour guys don't ride that great just because, you know, they've traveled. It's not a big goal for them. You know, so you you hear the chatter on the team bus of like, oh, I can't believe that guy's on the pro tour. I'm better than I'm here. Like, I can't, nobody will sign me, whatever. What happens a lot is when the races get a little bit more tiring or not great, like say tour of Alberta, it's raining all the time. And then the guys kind of give up because they know they're not going to win. And I had to to point this out to the guys. It's like, sometimes it's not about how you win or your result when you're on top form. Because it's really unfair to ask of a team director to sign you off your best result ever. Through sheer just playing the numbers game, you're going to have your best day training than you will in your race. So, and it's also too, like not hitting like some magical PR number. Oh, well, on this climb, I averaged this, I was holding this wattage. Making sure that you understand that's not your level now because you did it once. That's not your level. That's not what you are to expect the next time you go on a bike ride. We have like, you know, with training with track riders, you know, if they do a four minute pursuit and that they PR'd, they really want to do a four minute pursuit, bam, they trained hard, had all the mental stress and adrenaline leading in, and they go and they do like a 359. Problem is, is the next time you go up there, you're probably not going to do a 359. You are now not a 359 pursuer. Like until you can do this three times in a month with no specialized lead in, then you are not. Yeah, it's not hoping for that magic day, but it's also how you ride when you're tired. Yep. And that's a big difference. And that year on SmartStop, I think it was the final year we toured Alberta. I mean, they rode like trash. And I I had to tell him that like, I don't want to hear any more about how you guys should be on a pro tour team because there's a reason you're on my team, right? This wasn't nobody's first choice. You guys didn't turn down a pro tour offer for this. So there's a reason I have access to you. And it's not because of how you ride on top form. It's how you guys ride when you're tired. And that's what you need to focus on. That like, if I hear one more thing about like, Uh, you know, uh, trying to get the lighter wheel or, you know, a more aerodynamic frame set when you guys are getting tired and shit canned on a flat road race (laughs) in the rain. I'm not listening to you. It's this. So let's figure this out because now you are, if you combine the top results, your top results with positioning, dedication, Perseverance, all these cliches that you throw in there—that's the time to use cliches when you're tired, not when you're feeling good. Then that's how you get picked up the pro tour.
1: I like that this conversation has morphed a little bit into the psychology of the pro bike racer, and also the psychology of the pro bike racer director, as you as you as you both been. Do you think that I'm trying to think how to phrase this question? Which is the nice thing about podcasts because we can just cut this middle part out got to keep it in, man. People, <laughs> people, people like hearing the wheels turn. Yeah, no, like I said, I'm, I'm very much enjoying the way that this conversation is turned. So to to return this a little bit to our, our discussion, I mean, we, we wanted to talk this episode about essentially the way you structure an entire season. And from what I'm hearing from you is that, as you said earlier, the mental side is as important, if not more important, than, uh, than the physical side. But the two are definitely interconnected. I mean, there's no question that they're connected because what what is hurting these guys mentally maybe is the fact that they don't feel great. What what can riders do physically? And maybe this is a better question for, for Coach Trevor over here. What can guys do physically to keep their body from messing with their mind, basically? Is that what the base... Where the base is so important is that where periodization, where you get good good rests, are so important. Where what do you, what can you do to keep keep your body from essentially shutting off your mind because you feel like crap?
2: <laughs> I think it's almost the other way around. Not the answer yeah? for you, but please. I think no, no, I, I, th- I think it's um, if you if you've done some things in the off season to make sure that you don't get injured in the middle of the year. I mean that obviously helps your mind, but I think one of the best pieces of advice that I ever got while racing and it made absolutely no sense to me at the time. I remember thinking this person was dumb as hell was, I was, I was making this excuse why I didn't get a result in this race, blah, 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 blah. all I thought legitimate reasons. So the difference between reason and excuse, not (laughs) quite sure, (laughs) but, and I remember them just saying like, you know, Mike, it doesn't really matter how you feel. You're a professional. And I just thought that was like the dumbest thing i ever heard. Like, what are you talking about? Like, how I feel means everything. But then you get a little removed and you realize, like, it just doesn't matter, actually. Because you are here because either you've willingly showed up or you're being paid to show up. So, like, at a certain point, it just doesn't matter. And I took that on, you know. So, like, when I would do these time trials and I was really, I wanted to get a good result on the time trial. I remember letting go of trying to have good legs letting go, like not analyzing every uh, footstep across the hotel room floor or those first pedal strokes on my bike. Like I remember just not, I had to completely let go of that and not check in with my body every half second. And instead, I promised myself that I was not going to finish the race in good shape. I promised myself that I was going to really damage myself during this time trial. And I would almost lay in the hotel bed like mourning the effort that I was about to do (laughs) because I had made an agreement with myself that as long as I never tried to feel good I mean if it happens great but as long as I'm completely on board with total annihilation between that and the training I've done and any natural talent I have I'm gonna I'm gonna do an okay result I'm gonna be something that I I might not be pumped on but I'll be okay and that is the most important thing I think just the dedication to uh, not uh, almost like this violent response to hoping that you're gonna feel good where you just say like it doesn't matter like I'm just gonna go off and crush this
3: so the reason I was initially avoiding answering that question is because (laughs) I have to kind of take the physiologist says do all this in your preparation eat this the night before do all these things Throw that aside, and now you're going to hear from from bike racer Trevor, Uh-oh. where I'm much more the put your head down and do it. And as you know, a month ago, I was in a race. I got sort of hit by a car, fractured my hip, and raced another two and a half hours.
1: I don't think the car hit you. You hit the car.
3: Uh, yeah, I slid into the <laughs> car. Um, so I am fully on the same page with you. And I've watched a lot of cyclists, since I've always been more on the development end, I get to see all these guys very early on in their career. And I have seen guys with mediocre talent go all the way. And I have seen guys with amazing talent go nowhere. And ultimately, that mental side is what I see differentiates them. And I think that's more important than all the other elements put together. And so something I always tell the athletes I coach is you get three races your entire life where you feel great, where the legs are there, where you make the move, where everything goes right. Make sure you win that race because the next one's not going to be for a few years. Uh, Rest of the time, you're not going to feel perfect. The bike's not going to work perfectly. Things aren't going to go the way you expect in the race. Don't complain, figure it out, win the race anyway.
2: Yeah. I, I think that's where I, I messed up a tremendous amount of my early careers. I think I would, I would uh, train almost, I would train to have, to make the race like easier on me, to have those magic days. For those days where you fight for position for, before the climb, you hit the climb and you're just waiting for the attack and you're waiting for the attack and you're just like, God, I can't believe we're, nobody's attacked yet. And you look back and you're the last person in the group and you're like, oh, okay, I get it now.
3: So I think I think the message that we've given here is, is pros, just like us, they can't you know, as you said right at the beginning, by definition a peak is something that that is short and and, and rare. So they have their their really good points in the season, just like the rest of us, and, and the, the rest of the time they have to deal with not having the best form. But probably what differentiates the pros a bit is, this is their job. They can't say sorry my legs aren't there i'm not going to start today's race they got to start they have to perform and i think they build a toughness that allows them even when the form isn't there to still be able to race and i think that toughness is more mental than, than physiological
2: yeah it's having that like focus you know where you're at you know how to get your job done and also to what helps bring that more sustainable performance level is it's good like basically it's just called like ceaseless immersion. So it's how to make your life as professional and as uh, uh athletic minded as you can. So you you're not thinking like, "Oh, well, I'm going to it's December 1st. Start time to start dedicate myself and you go in like really hot and, you know, some unsustainable plan if it's diet or training like you're you're operating in this form of reality, and I think I did it so long where I didn't notice that I did it anymore. You know, like I I knew not to eat sugar past a certain time. I didn't really drink. I didn't I didn't do these things when I was a pro. So like, and to me, I didn't notice that I did them anymore. It was only when I was around people who weren't around it, who didn't dedicate themselves like that year round. And it has to be something sustainable. It has to be something. You know, you can't just go. On some crazy diet, and that you're white knuckling the whole time. You have to find a way to make a very real lifestyle that you get gains out of, even if it's really slow, but that you can live it around the clock. So the ceaseless immersion aspect is if if you were to travel to a new town like Los Angeles, and you saw it, you're flying in, and you see it's smoggy, and you're like, Wow, well, that's a lot of smog. After three or four months you might not see the smog anymore. But it doesn't mean the smog went away. Right. You're just so used to being around it that you don't see it anymore. And it takes somebody who's not from there to point it out to you. And that's the goal on how you can come in really hot and you can train better all year. You like you're eating really good diet all year. Like something obviously like sustainable and good and that you enjoy. Like how do you make this a diet that you enjoy? How do you make sure that you're doing your core work and your and any kind of muscle activation and your, and your, your training, like, how do you get that? So it's not taxing your partner, your mental side, uh, anything in your life. How can you live this 365? So it's not, uh, oh, well, I'm going to just be super serious for the next three weeks. Be a completely unreasonable human being, piss off everybody around me and be really moody the whole time. You know, <laughs> like that's not people. I think people confuse that with leading to a peak. Where they say, oh, right. I can't do that. I can only do that for three weeks out of the year. It's like, yeah, probably, because you're not a very nice person. <laughs> <laughs> but if you get started on it today, where you make sure to have this checklist of stuff that you can filter into your life and bring it around, it's it's much easier at that point. Because now you don't need to change. Well, the only thing you do is need to bring that mental dedication to each effort. That's a great way to look at it. So We're, the the things
3: that I would add is... Trying to race strong March through September, which is the typical local scene, sometimes shorter, is hard enough. Don't try to extend that and be doing it in December and January. I I have seen a lot of amateur and masters athletes who are already hitting their PR numbers in December and January going, I'm going to have a great season. I look at that and go, No, you're going to have a very short season. Uh, you might win some races in March, but but don't target anything in June. Um, so, still have some of that timing is, is the one thing that I would add. And then I had one other take home that I was going to add that I've completely forgotten. So we can <laughs> cut this segment out. will I think? Nope, um, I think we decided we're leaving everything. everything. In this oh no! So my yeah. <laughs> second point. So the second thing I'll add is, and, and Mike, I'm glad you've touched on this a couple times. But just to really emphasize this, the importance of recovery. Mm-hmm. You know, like I said, when you go into a race and you're not feeling great and you tear yourself apart to make sure you still perform, it does take a toll on you, and you have to get that recovery time. And I too often see athletes go and do these races, tell me they're fatigued, and then I say, okay, so what are you doing next week? Well, I think I'm going to do intervals on Tuesday. Uh-huh. You, you need to give yourself that rest. I had a, a professional... Athlete that I was working with a couple years ago who was from Australia. And she did the entire Australian season, which is our winter in the US, and then joined a US pro team. So, right when she was finishing the Australian season, she then did the entire US and European season. Yeah. And I think the entire time I was coaching her, we maybe did five dedicated interval sessions. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. I mean, almost all of our coaching and training was. Getting her recovered for the next race and getting
2: her through. Seems like a sweet coaching gig, man. <laughs> it was great. I some amazing training schedules. Here, so I know. Like I don't know. Sleep. Sleep. <laughs> Here's your training plan sleep. I
3: mean, it was actually tough. It was a lot of conversations and it, it was a lot of figuring out how to get her through, keep her on form. And she was able to do it. She got all the way to through September with form, but it was tough. And, and re, doing her recovery perfectly. Mm-hmm. was essential. Last time we spoke with Toms, a regular on our show and a pro tour rider with Cannondale Drapek, We asked his thoughts on surviving a pro season. Even though he talked about life as a pro, he had a lot of great take-homes that cyclists of all levels can use.
0: Well, for me, and I think most of the riders, the first thing is you pick the races you want to do good at. And you you pick the races you're you're going to do well at you pick the races that suit your skills and you go back from that. So you don't really start with the building phase. You start with a, where do I want to be good? And for us, there's a lot of racing throughout the year. So you really have to focus on the races you actually can do good at and will do good at, and that also, that focus is not just physically, but also mentally because A lot of the times, it's a lot in the head than in the legs. And you start going backwards from that. You pick the first race. Well, yeah, the first race you want to do really good at. And then you can count on a good month that you can be at the top level. For sure, you're going to be racing really good throughout the year as well. But there is that edge that you still need to win races. And once you decide where that's going to be, you take... I usually take two months because I need a good good block of intensity to really get me going. I take two months before that, I start doing some hard races, some maybe not even suited for me, but as long as the racing card, that's all you need. Well, not necessarily suited for me. For sure, it's better if they're suited for you, but at the same time, you then you'd want to do good at them and... Try too hard, just, but
1: just to kind of get some racing miles. Yeah, yeah, you for
0: sure need some racing miles, and just focus on intensity. Ca- cut back a little bit on the volume, and before the two months of racing, like to get the race legs under under you. I do three months on a perfect perfect scenario. Three months of build where I do mostly base miles. Focus a lot on core. I do the first month definitely I do a lot of running I do mountain bikes I do I do go swimming Uh, do a lot of gym work just because cycling is very easy on the bones easy on the joints and you still need to live as a human (laughs) so you need that running that impact thing uh, that impact part of it and you need to just be a actual human before you're a bike rider because we all We'll get skinny. We all will get twigs for our arms and just have frog legs. But you need you need to be a human first as well.
1: Right. Is it different for a rider like you than someone who, for example, is like targeting GC at a Grand Tour? Where do, do you feel like you need to be more like ninety percent all season versus a hundred percent at really short periods of time, or do you still try to hit that one hundred percent? couple times a season or once or twice a season
0: yeah for sure i try and hit that 100 percent. not every year you can just doesn't work that well just something goes wrong or you get sick or something but one of the key differences between especially gc riders and grand tours is that the training the focus on in training is different because for them the actual way to win a race is just drop everyone on a climb or when the time trials and that is sustained controlled effort we've seen how foom does it just dangles off the back and then comes comes from the back and smashes everyone so he just has that one constant number he can keep on well not him necessarily just those riders focus on that one number they can keep on going forever and ever whereas me and classic type of riders we have to focus a lot Also on the ability to just go hard as you can, five minutes at a time, 10 times per ride, just because every little punchy hill, every little acceleration, that's what it is. So the training is different. And that's, I think one of the, like, for sure on Sky, there's a lot of riders that focus a lot on that riding, just because not only they're Grand Tour riders have to be able to put that sustained power for a long time but also the riders that ride the flats all the time they have to be more able to keep that sustained number for a longer time than to be able to go five minutes flat out recovered in two minutes and five minutes flat out again
1: with your Giro ride this year do you think you'll change your training at all
0: for sure i'll try and do more stage races beforehand and that's uh, that's how you build the base as well and That's how you get that long sustained effort. But at the same time, I'm not going to go for the GC. So not necessarily.
1: Yeah, if you win a stage of the Jira, that's still not. It's still
0: going to be a stage where it's hard, hilly, and terrible weather.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, we we started today discussing uh, being able to peak all year. And we ended up talking about all kinds of things that were vaguely related uh, to peaking all year. Mentally and physically and, and you know, so basically just getting yourself through the season. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to think of a good way to sum up all of today's conversation in one line. I don't think it's actually possible. Regardless. Word you, salad. Word salad. Word salad. <laughs> I think that an interesting way to, to end this is just the three of us here maybe providing one last little take home and... and how to be as fast as possible for as long as possible. Go for it, Trevor.
3: So I think I'll approach it from the physiology side. And my take home is make sure you do that base work. If you are sitting in the field at close to threshold, you're just not going to last that long. And you're going to have very few points during the season where you're going to be strong enough to actually be competitive. Where if you have a good base you can win races at certain points of the year and you can still be competitive and contribute to the team the rest of the year. And and with that, the importance of recovery, the importance of having points in the year where you back down on that high-intensity work because that's what pushes you towards burnout and get that rest and and then rebuild. But if the base is there, you can still do okay in the races.
2: Uh, Yeah, I think just for me, I guess, extending... Your fitness is more of a mental game for myself, and I think creating a, a fearless self, moral inventory about mm-hmm. what you can and can't do, and not avoiding things that you're not great at. And I think in those times where you're really tired and whatever, mean that's when you focus on your weaknesses and being very honest with um, yourself, and not not getting carried away, and, and that this is a year where all of a sudden you've you're going to jump 40 watts and be six kilograms less. Just maybe try to back it down a little bit.
1: (laughs) And uh, finally for myself, I I think when I was racing, the the struggle was always sources of motivation and finding which sources worked and which sources didn't and which sources could keep me going through periods when I maybe didn't want to be doing what I was doing. And so, uh, those are going to change for everybody, but figure out your your sources of motivation, whether it's ego, whether it's beating your buddies, whether it's just bettering yourself, whatever that is, whether it's getting a contract, you know, making a living, whatever it is, figure out those sources of motivation and, and cultivate them and don't let other things get in the way. That was another episode of Fast Talk. We'd love your feedback. Email us at webletters at competitorgroup.com. Subscribe to Fast Talk on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and be sure to leave us a rating and a comment. While you're there, be sure to check out our sister podcast, the Velo News podcast. Become a fan of News on Facebook at facebook.com uh, and on Twitter at twitter.com slash Fast Talk is produced by Velo News, which is owned by Competitor Group. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual For Trevor Connor and our special guest Mike Creed, I'm Kaylee Fritz. Thanks for listening.